Second Corinthians chapter six, verses 11 through chapter seven, verse one. We're going to talk about holiness to the Lord this morning. You know, if you're, you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six, as Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's instructing them, starting in Matthew six, verse nine, instructing them in how to pray. And the very first thing out of his mouth concerning prayer, very first thing that he says, in this manner, therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, we're all so familiar with that prayer. I know a lot of you come from a Roman Catholic background, and I have some experience in that area as well. And it just becomes so automatic in your mind, you know, I think I can say that prayer in about five seconds without even thinking about any part of it. But it's so important. Every little part of it is so essential. Jesus intends that we should understand who we're speaking to exactly. And in some important ways. Very, God is very, very different than we are. One of the mistakes that people make is to apply human attributes to God. To see God like we see other human beings in positions of importance and power. What a mistake that is. Our Father in heaven. We don't really know what that means. I mean, the words mean our Father who is in the sky, basically. It it means a lot more than that, though, obviously. The idea is, and what we want to understand is that God is not like we are. Hallowed be your name. Notice that the book of Matthew is written to Jewish people, primarily. That's the focus of Matthew's gospel. Jewish people, like Jesus' action in his incarnation. He's reaching out specifically to Jewish people. Uh, Matthew is a Levite. He's a tax collector, not a really good thing. But like Jesus, they're dealing with the Jewish people. And if you are Jewish, you don't talk about God directly. You don't, like if you wanted to say, bless the Lord, you wouldn't say that if you were Orthodox Jew. Even today, you would say, blessed be the name. Of the Lord, And the idea there is that because you're so different, you're not holy and God is holy, you don't want to touch God with your words directly. You touch his name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you're saying the same thing, but you're removing, out of respect, you're removing yourself a step back. And this is actually, years ago, I worked with an Israeli guy who grew up, and I don't think he was Orthodox at all, but he was Jewish by practice. A lot of the people who live in Israel are atheists, like perhaps the majority of the people in Israel are Jewish by culture, but they are atheists. They don't really believe in God. There's, you know, the Hasadim, the Orthodox Jews, and other groups. This guy, obviously, he went to synagogue. He learned, everybody learns Hebrew in Israel. But um, he told me that if when he was a child, if he had been around his rabbi and he said the words, Baruch Hashem, now Baruch Hashem, what that literally means is, blessed be the name. That's all it means, blessed be the name. If he said that around a rabbi, the rabbi would smack him. So now, well, think about that for just a second. Not only can't you say the name of God, you can't even say the name. What's up with that? I mean, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? And I mean, some of this, I mean, it's just human confusion, but some of it is well-intended. People need to understand how 
different God is than we are. How holy he is. First Peter chapter 116 says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. God's purpose is that you and I would be like him, that we would be changed and affected by his presence in our life, that we would be like him and affected in that way. Here in 2 Corinthians, where we're going to be today, actually a little bit before the section we're dealing with, in chapter 2 verses, uh, I mean 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, it talks about how God is engaged in this process of actually changing us into the image of Jesus Christ. Something else that we don't fully understand. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, some parts of this process go on day by day, a little at a time, maybe even without us noticing that we're being changed. But not all of the parts of the process work like that. God wants us to be engaged, to take part in this process. He wants us to see ourselves for who we really are, uh, as painful as that might be. And sometimes it's pretty terrible. Folks, God has placed upon your life a very special calling. may not seem like that to you. may not seem like God has anything special to you at all. He, trust me, he really does. He has placed a very special calling on your life. And we believe that where God guides us, that he provides. In other words, where God directs your life, He certainly and absolutely will provide all that is necessary to see us through to the end. And that's really encouraging for me to be confident that God's involved in this process. He's going to help me do what I need to do. The calling may be a little bit different from one person to another. We're all different. Some of us are a little more different than others. Uh, People, it's interesting. God has certain issues that are consistent. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, things that he encourages and even commands us. It's interesting how people are perceived differently from one place to another. For instance, uh, your situation at work, your situation at home, your situation at church. You may interact with different people, have different issues, and people may perceive you differently. Uh, you may be thought of as X, Y, and Z at work, whereas at home, you're just mom, you know, where, and then at church, you're the head of X, Y, whatever ministry, you know, and you have, and people are interact with a different part of your personality. And it's, so it's not like hypocrisy, really, although it can be, you know, hopefully there's nobody here living a double life, although, you know, that's possible too, but um, the relationship of the apostle Paul to the different people that he ministered to. And you can pick it up in scripture. I mean, at Antioch, in Syria, in Turkey, in the city of Ephesus, they just thought he was amazing. This amazing apostle Paul, what a great guy he is. Whereas in Corinth, where we're reading today, there were some people there in the church in Greece who saw Paul as the short little Jewish guy that couldn't speak the language very well. What's up with this? What is he doing? People may see us all kinds of ways. There are people out there who don't hold you in much respect. And there are other people who think that you're probably much better than you are. You like those people, don't you? (laughs) 
You ever thought how funny it is that the people that you really like are people who think that you're wonderful? Like your grandchildren. They're just your favorite people in the world for some reason. Interesting coincidence. Really, and the reality of it is, whatever people think of me, whatever people think of you, it has has no effect upon who the Lord knows us to be. And that needs to be my concern. The person that God's opinion of my life. That's my, my focus. Second Thessalonians 2.4, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. And that's your scripture. God is the one who chose you. He has considered you faithful to be entrusted with the gospel. And he is the one who tests our hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the people of Corinth have kind of an amazing history with the Apostle Paul. I mean, he has visited them. He has taught them. He's lived with them. He has rebuked them. He's exhorted them. He has encouraged them. He wrote the book of Romans while staying there. He's written at least a couple of letters to them before this one. He threw some of them out of the church. He later on invited them to come back in. He baptized a few. He yelled at them. Maybe it just seems like he yelled at them, but certainly he has prayed for them. But most importantly, most importantly, Paul has loved these people. He loved them. Okay? I think it's safe to say that with the help of the Holy Spirit, Paul has wrestled through with these people, just about every imaginable situation. And by this time, Paul is as open and unguarded with this people as he could possibly be. They are his family, for better or for worse. They're his family, which means a couple of things. One, he's going to tell it like it is. He's not going to play games with these people. He's going to tell them exactly what they need to know. And secondly, that he is vulnerable to them because he loves them. When you love somebody, you're, it's kind of a messy situation. You can be injured. You can be hurt by what they do and what they say and what they think. One of the reasons that it's hard to tell people that you love and who love you what they really need to hear, because if they reject you, it's painful and messy. When you love someone, you're vulnerable. The theme of 2 Corinthians is really Paul's defense of his ministry to the Corinthians. And he deals with a lot of other subjects, but he always kind of circles back around to his ministry. And it it is important because the Corinthians, their relationship with God is founded upon the substance of Paul's ministry. And so he realizes unless they understand that his ministry is from God, they're never going to really respect the work that God is doing in their lives as individuals and in the church as a whole, and they need to do that. You need to have a respect. Being a Christian is kind of a strange thing in a lot of ways. God uses people to minister to us, and people are full of holes. They all make mistakes all the time. Anytime you go into church, you're liable to see somebody do something really dumb. But yet... It is God's spirit that is working in that place for God's purpose. And I need to have a respect toward the work of God in spite. And so what I need to do, and and I think it's part of us being mature as believers, is to be able to look past the people that God uses 
to God's purpose working and to be respectful of his, his program going forward to give him the glory, to give him the credit, and to recognize that whatever good thing the people in the church do, it's God's hand upon them. And so I'm not distracted by the frailty of the people that God... In fact, I pray for them. God, help us do good. Help us to honor you and help us to walk uprightly. But recognize that it's the Lord. He's the one who does the work. You know, you may be the smartest person on the planet. I don't see any reason why not. Somebody's got to be the smartest person on the planet. Why not you? You know, I... Being the smartest person in the room is sometimes kind of a handicap. Um, it, it really inhibits you from being able to listen to other people. You know, you listen to some, yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada. I know, I know, I know. Next, next. You know, that, that's not good for anybody. Kind of amazing to me how many things I used to think were really important, and now I kind of see them as a part of the problem. I guess I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. Being smart is good. Don't get me wrong. But if what you want is to be a real benefit, some real tangible assistance to people, then you have got to love them. Okay? You have got to love them. Believers, unbelievers, friends, Romans, countrymen, it doesn't matter. You need to love people. You see, nobody really cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Okay? It opens all the doors. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Everything else is empty, is vain. Paul loved these people. He loved them. 2 Corinthians 12:15, he says, I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. We know that Paul loved these people. Because God loved these people. And we also know that God loves us, all of us, in spite of all of our terrible failures, of which there are many, just like the people in Corinth. I listen to people on the radio, pastors on the radio, talk about, oh, these Corinthians, they're so terrible. They did all these terrible, so carnal, so evil, so And I'm like, gosh, who are you? You know, I think that. Where do you get off? You hear people talk about the apostles that way. Oh, Simon Peter, he's so dumb. Gracious. Have mercy. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. God's Holy Spirit uses the Apostle Paul here to engage the people in Corinth and also for us, to engage us regarding God's direction for our lives, where we are and where we're going. Because... Where you're going always starts with where you are. We need to see that for what it is. So first of all, in verses 11 to 13, we're going to talk about God's dedication for his children. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open, but you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, In return for the same, I speak as to children. You also be open. You know, the real servants of God always provide an example that reflects the Lord. And Paul was no different. 1 Corinthians 11 says, imitate me just as I also 
imitate Christ. Paul's life in the scripture is for us a picture of the heart of God for his people. He shares not only his own feelings, but also the heart of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And it's truly amazing to me how many people are convinced of the truth of the Bible. They truly believe that Christ is the only way, but for some reason or another, they are unable to commit their lives and to surrender themselves practically into following the truth of Jesus. Notice I said practically, not perfectly. There are no perfect followers of Jesus. They can't quite get to that point. And you'll ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the only... I do, I know it's true. Do you believe the Bible's word? I know it is. And you're not following God because, oh, you know, it just, it's, there's just things in my life, you know. What things? Oh my goodness. What possible thing, you know? If you were dead, I would understand. But, you know, get up and follow the Lord. You and your intellectual mind know that it's the truth. Do the right thing. It's just like kind of frustrating. And they just sit there. I don't know. What is it? I just don't feel like it. Strangle yourself. Do something. You know, please get a clue. People don't have any kind of understanding where they're standing. They're on the edge of eternity. At any moment, you know, a meteorite could... Hit them in the head. That's over. I mean, seriously, it's bizarre. People like to see their situation as complex. Well, you know, there's all these people and expectations and I got plans and hopes and I have this control issue and then there are my early childhood issues. I've got. People like to see things as complicated. You know, it makes them smarter. But I think the truth, folks, is right here in verse 12. Right here in verse 12. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. The thing that you have given yourself to, those are the things that hold you back from following the truth. Second Peter 2.19, for of whom a man is overcome by him also is he brought into bondage. Jesus says in John chapter 8, whoever commits sin is the slave of sin. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. There can be but one master passion of your life. One. Think about it. You've got to decide what it's going to be. What is it that hinders a person? Not God. Not God. He is the answer. He is the only issue in all of your life experience that is constantly and consistently seeking your benefit without exception. It is their own affections, the things that they are inclined and drawn toward, the things in the world that appeal to them, that draw them. And Paul's appealing to them to follow his example, to engage themselves in the Lord's purpose for their benefit, for their protection. In verse 13, he says, now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. As to children, it's a fair exchange. Be open. I mean, even if that's all a person can do, maybe you can't change the way that you feel. 
Or maybe you can't eliminate these desires that you have. Or you can't eliminate the fact that maybe, honestly, you really don't want to change. You can be open. What you can do is to be honest about where you are before the Lord. You can tell Him the truth. Tell Him what you're thinking. How you see your situation. Be open. God may be shocked. I mean, not that He doesn't know all of this stuff. He'll just be shocked that you're being so honest about it. Even if you can come to the Lord and say, God, I don't want to change, but if you want to change me, I'm willing to let you work in my life. Any little tiny piece of the situation that you... God will begin to work with that and chip away at the issue. Sometimes I think that the Lord must get really tired of people telling him what they think he wants to hear. A lot of of prayers kind of go that way. Uh, Even if you're angry at God, which I don't really advise, it's not a good thing, be honest with him. Unless I honestly deal with the Lord based on my best appraisal of where I am, the only way that God can help me is against my will. As long as I'm lying to God about where I am and what I'm doing and what I think and what I feel, he cannot honestly engage me and get me on the same page when he's working against my will. God can change me against my will. Look at Jonah. But a real part of the problem is for me to understand that there is a problem in the first place, that I need to change. There are things in my life I need to change. And that I can't do it myself. That I need to surrender myself to him. So Paul exhorts them, be open. And then he gets serious here. He jumps in with both feet and engages the real heart of the problem as honestly as is possible. In verses 14 through 18, God's instruction for his children. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So Paul makes this statement at the beginning of verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he issues a directive. He issues an order. And he follows up with five rhetorical questions. All having the same answer. Just, you know, to illustrate in case you missed it the first four times. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, yoking, in case you're not from an agricultural world, you may not know what that is, a hundred years ago uh, or more. Uh, Yoking has to do with farm animals being harnessed to a plow or some other farm implement to pull it through a field. And back in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Law of Moses, the Jews were instructed not to put an oxen on one side and a donkey on the other, not to unequally yoke their animals together, mostly because it creates a practical problem. You're going to wind up going around in circles because one pulls faster than the other. It just don't work. But this was part of the law of Moses, Moses' instruction. But 
by metaphor. Paul's using this by metaphor for believers, followers of the Lord, being yoked together. Now, this is not a thing that would have happened in Jewish culture because the Jewish people were ultra paranoid about even touching non-Jewish people. If you were an ultra-Orthodox Jew walking through the city square and the shadow of a Gentile fell upon you, if you were priestly, you would run home, clean your clothes, take a shower and a bath before you came back out. And they, you know, from the time that uh, Jewish people were small, they told their kids horror stories about, you know, non-Jewish people, they kill their children and put them in the walls of the buildings and horror, horrible things. And some of them were true, unfortunately. And, uh, but... To the Corinthians in the Greek culture, they're very inclusive and they needed this instruction. They needed to know not to be connected with people that don't have a relationship to God, to understand that they're different. Most often we hear about this with reference to marriage or dating, at least in the church nowadays. But it relates to a much broader issues of the compromise of our lives, being attached to this present world. You don't have to be married to something to have it influence you in a bad way. We're influenced every day by the world around us in ways that we don't notice. We think that we go out in the world and we're just, you know, it's all right. I'm not affected. You know, I listen to the news. It doesn't bother me. Do you ever lie to yourself? Uh, The world we live in has a dramatic effect upon us. Every single day, things that we hear and see... uh, have a dramatic effect upon us. We're influenced every day by the world around us. Not only what we do, how we see things, how we think. Regarding people that willingly put themselves into a compromising situation, a a relationship, for instance, a business relationship that's not attached to the Lord, or a romantic, much worse, a romantic relationship, they, they act like they think there's some hidden nuance in the original language here, like, well, what the scripture really means is don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers unless he's really cute. See that? You don't see that part? It's not in your Bible? Okay. Or, in, or don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever unless they've got lots of money or are your boss's daughter or, or unless, unless he's the one for you, then you have an exception. And do me a favor. If you're going to take this kind of course of action, Go out in the backyard of your house and hit yourself in the head with a two-by-four a lot. It'll be much quicker, less messy, and in the long run, a lot less painful for you as well. The average response of a person choosing to go this way is, I don't have to worry. That would never happen to me. I am in control. I can handle it. That's until they come into your office screaming and crying. I, I am the exception to the rule. Sure you are, and I'm the tooth fairy. No problem. Let me ask you a question. Think about this. Just practical stuff, okay? What is easier, to pull someone down off a ladder or to pull someone up onto a ladder with you? Which is easier? Which is easier, to make clean water dirty or dirty water clean? How do you even clean water? Not with soap. What is easier, to scratch a car or to paint a car? What is easier, to build something or to tear it down, to corrupt something or to... Make it undefiled. How do you, you can't even undefile. You want the definition of defiled? Defiled is when somebody in your family takes your toothbrush and brushes the neighbor's dog's teeth. How do you undefile that? How do you fix that? You don't. You throw it away. It's gone. It's defiled. 
Listen to Psalm 1, David's commentary on separation from ungodly influence. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor even sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, right on time, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The guy who meditates day and night on the word of God, whatever he does shall prosper. Second Corinthians 5.17 tells us something about you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's you. He is a new creation. Old things passed away. They're gone. Behold, all things have become new. Second Timothy 2.3. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Do not nail your feet to the deck of a sinking ship. You've got work to do. You've got to help people get to the lifeboats. That's your job. Nail yourself to the deck. You're done. We are in the world. We are not to be attached to the world in any kind of a practical, normal way. John 17, 11, the prayer of Jesus for his people. The Lord prays, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. To be one, to be connected to him. I cannot be connected to Jesus and to the world. I cannot be connected to both. We should not be one with anyone or anything that is not one with Jesus. And so, what does that mean to me practically? I got to administrate the issues of my life. I got to look at my life. I got to look at my job. I got to look at my friendships. I have to examine these things. Why am I in this friendship? I am here to be the image of Jesus Christ. I am here to be an influence, to draw people to the truth. I am here to have fellowship with believers, those who trust in the Lord. But in each situation, it's different. Back in verse 14, he asks us a question. What does righteousness have to do with lawlessness? Righteousness is right standing with God, that which is acceptable with God. Lawlessness is not right standing with God. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. What connection? None. What fellowship? It asks. And the, the word there is not the Greek word koinonia, which is spiritual, communion. He's using another word for sharing. And the answer still, no common, no common ground. What about light with darkness? 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 5, the line shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. But, but, but what if it's just a little darkness? Just a little? I mean, it's not all darkness. There's a lot of light in there, you know, and, but there's maybe, maybe a little, I don't know. Stop it. Stop. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. He will tell you. 
If you listen, he will tell you. The day I accepted Christ, I was sitting in a kitchen in Glendora, you know, 20 miles from here, holding hands around the kitchen table, praying with a cousin, my stepmom, and a couple other people, and prayed to receive Jesus, and finished the prayer, and sat back, and I looked at everybody, I said, well, you know, I guess this means I need to quit getting high. And uh, my cousin, who I used to do drugs with all the time, looks over at me and he says, well, you just accepted Jesus, right? And I said, yeah, I guess so. And he goes, why don't you ask him, see what he says. I, thought, I totally expected him to say, yeah, you better quit smoking that devil weed, you're going to go to hell for sure. You know, really, I, that's what I expected. And he said, I should ask Jesus and do what he says. By the way, I don't recommend that you, you do that. Don't tell people that. You know. Tell people, yeah, stop doing drugs right now. Uh, but it was the Lord, because I did. I asked Jesus, and he told me, yeah, stop doing drugs. Blew my mind. Not only that, this guy actually believed I could ask, and somebody would tell me. And he did. Pretty amazing. Wonderful stuff. What about the, the, con- the connection between Christ and Belial? The, Titus chapter 3 verse 4 tells us that Jesus is the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man. That's what Jesus is, the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward all men. Now the word Belial means worthlessness, evil. It's also used of Satan in different places. You know, sometimes I think it's hard for us to really comprehend how good Jesus really is because my mind kind of categorizes things like cardboard cutouts after a while. You know, I've been reading and studying about Jesus, his words and stuff for so long, and it's only when the Holy Spirit kind of reaches out of eternity and grabs a hold of my brain and says, look at this, look at what this is, that it really gets my attention and how amazing I mean, not, I mean, not just the death on the cross, but everything that Jesus has done throughout the ages and, and still right this moment today, his spirit with us working to engage us and to help us understand. You know, I know if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody and you're talking to them and there's this glazed look that comes over people's faces when they're just like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus, yeah, God, okay, yeah, the Bible, all right. Okay, yeah. And then you will say something to them and it's just some nondescript thing and all of a sudden it's like, boom, you've got them. They're making eye contact. They're like dialed in and they're looking at you and in their face they're saying, is what you're saying really true? Is that really true? And all of a sudden all the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you're like, oh man, it's one of the most amazing things you'll ever experience in your life because God reveals himself. You see, you guys, Jesus died for the whole world. He died for the world. But he died for you also. He died just for you. I need his help to understand how good he is. While, on the other hand, my enemy is working to destroy any good thing and to confuse me. In the process. What accord, what agreement? And the answer again, nothing. No connection. No possible connection. Do you find it interesting so many people in the world are willing to believe in God, but they don't want to believe in the devil? This is very common. And there are a couple of reasons, I think. One, because it keeps people from having to believe in the Bible. 
As long as they have, well, I believe in this other kind of God you don't believe in, where there's no devil. And so then they don't have to deal with the biblical truth. The other thing is I, I think people don't really want to deal with the reality of how evil this world is. Because in spite of the fact that we live in the information age and all the things that you hear every day and the horrific atrocities that you see every day, I'm here to tell you that the world you live in is much, much, much worse than anything you could ever imagine. It is horrific beyond your imagination. The things that are actually going on here, God knows how bad the world is. The great thing is I, I don't need to be an expert on evil. That's not my job. Romans 16, 9 says, I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. I need to be an expert on the Lord. That's my job. I want to know everything there is about him and devote myself to that purpose. The point of the argument, beginning here at verse 15, what part does a believer have with an unbeliever? And the answer would be like to help them escape the world of death. But we have nothing in common. As Jesus said to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. And we can't say, I'm from above, but we need to be able to say that I am not of this world. That's our hope, that's our focus. We want to be sojourners, we want to be pilgrims, we want to be visitors here, but not permanent residents. And that's the very best thing, folks. The fifth rhetorical question, again in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, walk among them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? You know, in the Old Testament, there are a couple of different situations where pagan idols were taken into the temple of God, one by King Ahaz and one by King Manasseh in Judah, just prior to the captivity. The people of Corinth were familiar with the problems of idols. Paul had written to them at great length. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, free, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ and the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Folks, we need to understand this in the strongest possible sense. And you've got to realize that pagan idolatry has gone through a major transformation in the modern world. Pagan idolatry is not going to a temple, offering incense, or killing an animal on the steps of some kind of an altar. Pagan idolatry is much, much larger than that. It's huge. It encompasses every aspect of our culture. Back in the 80s when my kids were little, 
I remember uh, we hadn't had a television for many years. We got a TV and there was a show on television, like all kids shows. It's like an excuse to sell products one way and another. And this was something, uh, some robot versus human kind of science fiction thing. And my son was watching it. And I don't remember the name of it, actually. It's a long time ago. But these robots were evil, and they were going around destroying humans. And one of them broke into a spaceship with the humans and came in. And I'm sitting here watching this with my five-year-old, you know. And, and the humans ask the robot, who are you? And the robot looks at him and says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And I was like, aha, where's the remote? How did that happen? How does that happen? I know how that happens. I know exactly how that happens. That's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. It's the same source. And you and I need to have our eyes open to recognize what we're dealing with here. You are the literal temple of the living God. Do you imagine that God takes that lightly in some way? Again, from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? And Ephesians 1, 13 says the same thing that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. He says, I will dwell in them. And that's maybe a strange idea to us to really have a practical grasp of the fact that God's presence is in my, my physical body in some way, every moment of every day, in every situation. Not a thing that you can take lightly or conceive of easily. God of the universe taking up residence in me literally but something for us to think about. In John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to the disciples the night before his death about their relationship with him and, and really honestly over and over again pointing them back to a relationship with him and being born again and having the spirit of God in them. John 14, 21, Jesus says, He who loves me, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. One of the reasons that we have such a difficult time understanding the weight of this statement is because, I mean, in reality, we never had to go to the temple to have fellowship with God. We never had to go to the tabernacle or the temple. And this was the way that Jews could have fellowship, could worship God directly. If the temple was destroyed, it destroyed their connection and their understanding of their connection with God, God says, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. He is present with us in the most practical sense. I will be their God. And, and we have certain privileges and responsibilities relating to our connection to the Lord. They shall be my people. God, on the other hand, has specific rights in the promises that he's spoken over us. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body 
and in your spirit, which are God's. Finally, God's conclusion for his children, verse 17 through chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, come out from among them, be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Come out. Come out from among them. Be separate. You say, you don't understand. I work at this place where all it is is just trash and foul language and pornography and every other kind of thing. Yeah, no, I understand. I've worked at that place before. Separate yourself, starting with your mind, starting with separate your thinking, the way that you conduct, the way that you approach, the way that you live and walk and act. Be separate. This is actually part of this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 52. The Lord's plan that we should be different from the world that we live in. Why? Because the world we live in is corrupt beyond even our comprehension. Romans 12 one says, I beseech you by the mercies of God, I beg you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is reasonable, your reasonable service. And don't be like the world. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind with your thinking. And you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, who can control their thoughts? Have you tried? You've got to start by being open. Try to submit your thoughts. This is what 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, 10, 4 and 5 is all about. Bringing your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. You can do this. The Holy Spirit says you can. The Bible says you can. God says you can. If you say you can't, who am I going to believe? Not you. You can do this. But it is a, there's a learning curve. And you have to begin to deal with the issues of your thinking. We are to utterly reject the standards of this present world. And he gives us three steps. Come out from among them, and in case we didn't understand it, and be separate. And then do not touch what is unclean. Don't even touch it. What is that? Let's look at that. Don't do that. Don't even touch what is unclean. Psalm 101 really gives us David's insight on separating ourselves from the unclean thing. David says in Psalm 101, verse 1, I will sing of mercy and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Notice he's like doing a positive self-talk. This is what I'm going to do this. I can do this. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes will be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell in my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. As believers, we are all involved in this constant battle to maintain our connection with the Lord, praying without ceasing. We fight the world as it is trying to twist our understanding and our actions. 
First John 5.19 says, We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We fight our flesh. That is in the process of corrupting any of the few decent intentions that we might have. Romans 7.18, I know that in my flesh there is nothing good. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. We fight a spiritual battle against a real adversary. Every one of you here today is doing battle with spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We don't entirely understand, but let me tell you, they're smart and they've got resources and they know where to push our buttons. If we are willing and able to follow the Lord and to separate ourselves from the death that our enemy has intended for us, the Lord says, I will receive you. And that is what he wants to do. He's directing us to sanctification. You guys, salvation works in three ways. When you accepted Christ, you were justified. Once and for all, your sin is forgiven. Every single day, right now, at this moment, you are in the process of sanctifying yourself, setting yourself aside, and being holy unto the Lord. And when Christ returns, you will be glorified. Justification, sanctification, glorification, that's the whole deal. That's how it works. Sanctification is my salvation working today. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have responsibilities. Verse 18 says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and my daughters. You don't realize what an amazing thing it is to say daughters in there. What a beautiful thing that that is. Because the New Testament places women on an equal level. They are co-inheritors with men. And this is in the first century, in the Greco-Roman culture. And you don't realize what a miracle that is, and how exalted and liberated women are in the eyes of God, how that they are absolutely equal with any man, sons and daughters. It's kind of crazy as you think about the idea of a father, you know, something we've always dealt with in our world. You don't realize that God invented the idea. He, you know, had a, a, made up a blueprint, actually planned out the idea of what a father, the very best thing that a father was to be. And he envisioned that as his relationship towards us. Not our, not our taskmaster, not our boss, our father. I will be your father. So chapter 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God has promised, folks. He has spoken promises over you. And you may not feel like God has made promises over your life, but he has. Very specific and pointed issues, promises for your life and for your family and for the people that you will bless and care for in the days to come. God has made promises to you. And because of those promises, we have a great debt. We owe God. Generally, doesn't seem like a really wonderful thing to be in debt. I mean, if it was, this would be the happiest country in the world. Uh, there are different ways of being in debt. There's the traditional way of loathing and wretchedness. 
And then the way of our response to God, a debt of gratitude. And that's what we have. We are grateful. The second half of verse 1 here, that we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Romans, Romans 12.9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And the part there where it says abhor, do you know what the word abhor means? Look it up in a dictionary. Go look it up. See what abhor. Abhor is like hate and reject. Have you ever been in a situation where something happened and you got instantly sick to your stomach? That's abhor. That's, that's like physical revulsion where you don't even want to be in the room. Abhor what is evil. Okay? Hate. Utterly hate what is evil with every fiber of your being. Very wise man. I'm pretty sure G. Campbell Morgan, I couldn't find the quote, once said, unless a person has a legitimate hatred of sin, they should have a very difficult time living a holy life. The first step is recognizing what is filth. Because it it can be a little confusing in this world. Satan's greatest, maybe his greatest talent, is dressing up filth to look like it's solid gold. You know, it's called marketing. If you're in marketing, I apologize. But um, we need to be able to identify the good from the evil. And we need to be honest with ourselves about Hebrews chapter 5 connects the ability to identify good and evil with the idea of maturity as a believer. Those who are of a full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How concerned about these things should we be, folks? How important are these issues? How concerned should we be that Divorce is as commonplace as marriage and that there is absolutely no stigma to anyone being divorced. How concerned should we be that we have really moved on from concerns about homosexuality to the point where small children are now deciding their own gender identity, sexualizing and educating children below the age of 10 years old in all of the sexual universe? Um, How concerned... Should we be that common images and languages of the culture are profane by intention, taking what God created and making it a vehicle for depravity? How concerned should we be that the rule of law on every level has surrounded the high, surrendered the high ground of authority to uh, making it impotent to engage or protect us on any kind of a moral issue? Should we be concerned that our children and grandchildren are being force-fed the lies of the postmodern world until they cannot tell the difference? With what degree of seriousness should we approach these things? Serious is a heart attack. Please don't imagine that these issues, which is I've just not even not even the tip of the iceberg, don't imagine that these things you're seeing are common to other cultures in the world. And well, things like this happen from time to time. Personally, I don't believe that's true. Personally, I think you are seeing, you are a witness to the death of Western culture. It's gone. It's not coming back. You don't bounce back from this. You know, it's going to leave a mark. The only question is what's going to fill the void? Because something is going to fill the void. For you and I, there's a different agenda. 
You and I have a calling that is clear and is vital. He's called and enabled us to the perfecting of holiness. As individuals, as families, as the body of Christ. Prophet Jeremiah lived through the destruction of his world. He has an interesting comment, Lamentations 3.39. Why should a living man complain, a man, for the punishments of his sins? Let us search out and examine our ways. Let us turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We are to perfect holiness. How? In the fear of God. And again, it's kind of a little difficult for us because the fear of God is so alien to us in this world. Romans chapter 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. God's dedication for his children. His heart is open. We are conflicted by our attachment and our affection to this present world. God's instruction for his children that we should have no connection to this present world. And finally, God's conclusion for his children. Being separate from this world, we have his promises and we should be engaged in perfecting holiness. You know, in the Old Testament, the priests of the temple had very, very specific duties. I mean, even their clothing was intended to speak of God's purpose at work through their service. And especially the high priest, uh, the priest occupying the place that Jesus the Messiah holds, revealing God to his people and representing the people before the Lord. The high priest wore a turban on his head. And attached to the turban of the high priest, there was a solid gold plate. And on the plate were written these words, Holiness to the Lord. Now, the high priest couldn't see the words. Everyone who saw him could read them, but I'm sure he knew they were there. They were for the benefit of the people. He was to represent the temple of God, represent the Lord in the same way that our lives speak to every single person that we cross paths with. Our lives speak of the presence of the Lord. Our lives speak of the love and the truth of the Lord. Because, folks, we don't represent the temple of the Lord. We are the temple of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not how that Jesus Christ is in you. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. And Lord, we, we confess to you, Lord, our failures, Lord, our, our sin, and how that we do fall short. And Lord, we are and have been attached to the world in ways that we need to address. And Father, we pray for your spirit to strengthen our hearts, to draw us to the truth, and Lord, to lead us in your purpose. Father, we know you have a plan here. And we know, Father, that it is your goodness and your love and your strength that will win the day. Strengthen our hearts as we walk with you. And, Lord, give us wisdom to follow as we should. As we're all praying together and every head is bowed. If you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have 
a sincere doubt that if you were to die today, you do not know what would happen to you. You need to surrender yourself into the hands of Jesus. And this is your opportunity today. God has placed you in this place. He has opened your heart and your mind. He's spoken to you through his word. And you need to surrender yourself into his hands. In a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. And this is a prayer of surrender. And it is an opportunity for you to pray along with me to give yourself to Christ and to see the reality of his purpose at work in your life for him to reveal himself to you. If you want to receive Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I'd like to ask you to pray this prayer after me. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my many sins and failures. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. And I believe that he rose from the dead. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me a new life in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray.